As a college student, Stephen Smith worked for the Canadian Border Services and tells us about one of the biggest problems coming across the border. Um, we did find, you know, a number of guns, uh, a lot of drugs, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what we had coming through. A lot of cheese, you know, cheese is very expensive in Canada. So people were running cheese up from the Wait U.S. Wait a minute. <laughs> really? Who was, considered the, who was considered the Pablo Escobar of cheese smuggling? <laughs> I know. I, I know. got four kilos of rope for today. What did you get? It's probably worth more than cocaine up here. I got, I got some smoked gouda that's going two for one today. You got to be right, careful. Man. Don't tell too many people. You'll get robbed on the way up. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hey, all of you players, playerettes, dudes, dudettes, and anything in between, welcome back. This is Game of Crimes. I am your host, Morgan Wright, the dude, the man, the myth, the legend, here with another dude, man, myth, and legend, my literal partner in crime. Steve Murphy, but everybody calls me Murph, and welcome back. Thank you guys for joining us once again for what will be just an awesome episode. And I say awesome because... Um, enough of you whiners out there say we didn't have somebody from Canada. So we went and got you somebody from Canada. So we'll talk about that in a minute, but real quickly, let's do some housekeeping. So hit that Apple, that Spotify. Now that has uh, ratings and reviews, hit those five stars, those, you know, uh, five kilos, whatever it is, whatever measure of attitude that they have to rate our podcast, just go hit those five things on there. Really helps us out a lot. Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com for everything. Our book list is there. So uh, Bill Sarukas, who we'll talk about in a minute, last week, his book is up there, Chasing Evil. Great episode. Uh, our merch list, everything is over there. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be is over at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. You just got to be there, Steve. If all the places in the world, this is one of the seven wonders of the world you just got to visit, right? <laughs> Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Man, we've got a buttload of content over there. I think we have as much content on Patreon as we do on, on our regular podcast channel here. And it's some of it's uh, serious stuff. I mean, you guys know we're not going to take ourselves too serious, but there's a lot of fun stuff on there as well. And you get to hear from people more in depth, like the people we're interviewing right now, Morgan. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, too, we got something teed up for you that came out of our latest uh, Patreon episode, uh, our 2022, March 2022 random surprise. It literally, it's called You Can't Make This Shit Up. And there's a reason why. <laughs> you have to listen to the whole thing. But anyway, head on over there. If you want to head on over to paypal.com, use our email, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. You can do that or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help bring us you even help us bring you even more exciting content. Now, real quick, before we get into our standard disclaimer, great story. I mean, I love the way, just like the big Lebowski, we tied the room together. The rug really ties the room together. The story with Bill Sarukas last week about his investigation, we had the takedown and then the technical stuff behind it. So Jeff Nice, uh, I think it was episode 18, uh, we talked about the takedown of the DC snipers. Aaron Turner came on and talked about the technical issues. And now Bill Sarukas, and I've known Bill for 10, 15 years, I think. I did not know he was the dude that was basically developed the information that led to their identification. I mean, just fantastic. That, And you're exactly right. It really did try the all of those different parts together on that investigation. 
And like we told you, he is the man that solved the case. He's the one that, that poo-pooed the, the two white males in a white van. I mean, couldn't have been farther from the truth. It was, it was like a 180-degree uh, turn from what it really turned out to be. So fantastic, Bill. And and thank you again for the book. He, he provided us all with autograph and personalized copies of the book. So thank you very much, brother. And he caught you coming into your uh, presentation in Chicago. <laughs> he did. We talked about that. Yeah, yeah we pulled up in, the, in an Uber, started unloading our stuff, and here comes Bill walking down the street with our books. I'm like, are you doing surveillance on us or what? <laughs> so lesson to you guys, the U.S. Marshals always find their man or woman. So don't yep. mess with the U.S. Marshals. So anyway, let's get into our standard disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but... We're not going to take ourselves serious. Serious topics, but we're going to have some fun. And how do we have fun, Murph? Well, we just make crap up. And then oh, we no, call sorry, it... Sorry, we bring real, real stories. We bring real stories, and we call it what? Let's get ready for... Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter! Yay! So we got a couple stories. In fact, one story was so popular, I have to give three people credit for it. But the first one comes to us from Gary Warden Jr. Steve, this happened in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, population 12,711. Salute. So <laughs> if you wake up, there's a lot of things you don't want to see standing over your bed. One of them may be your ex. A Bloomberg man woke up to see his ex-girlfriend standing over his bed. Mallory Klingerman, 32 of Mount Car or Carmel, looked at her boyfriend, his ex-boyfriend, and his current girlfriend saying, don't the two of you look comfortable as she stood at the foot of their bed? Oh. She was chased from the residence before police were alerted to the situation. This just happened March 7th, 2022. Uh, troopers, uh, Pennsylvania troopers say Klingerman damaged side view mirrors and a rear windshield on a vehicle as she left the property. Estimates are still being made. She was charged with a first-degree felony burglary, third-degree criminal trespassing, misdemeanor criminal mischief, and loitering and prowling at nighttime. <laughs> and once again, felony stupidity. Felony stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> what was she thinking? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm wondering what this next guy was thinking, too, Steve, because what do we always tell you kids? Kids, don't do math. Here's yeah. why. And this one, we had three people send us this story. So Mariah Lawson, Jessica Stop, and Andrea Papa George. There is a good Greek name, Papa George. There you go. Uh, she's our attorney down in uh, the uh, Georgia area. She's an attorney down in Georgia. Anyway, um, <laughs> Spring Hill man calls 911 to request his meth be tested for authenticity. <laughs> so Spring Hill, Florida. Hey, you know, we didn't do a check. Let's, do, let's use the magic of Siri. Hey, Siri, what is the population of Spring Hill, Florida? In 2020, the population of Spring Hill was 130,568. Uh, too bad. Too big. We can't call it us. We can't give it a salute. But still, nope. it's fun. All right. So uh, so this dude, and this happened March 10th. Dude, we are bringing people timely stuff. Absolutely. He, at approximately 7 p.m., the Hernando County Sheriff's deputies were sent to a uh, address in Spring Hill after a resident in the home called 911 to request that a deputy be dispatched to test the methamphetamine he had recently purchased. <laughs> they met with Thomas Eugene Colucci. There is an Italian name, Colucci. Colucci told deputies he had recently purchased meth from a male he met in a local bar and having used a bit of it, 
actually believed it was bath salts. He went on to tell deputies he was an experienced drug user, having used methamphetamine in the past, and knows what it should feel like. So what did he do? He produced two small baggies, each containing a white crystal-like substance, and handed them over to the deputy. The deputies obliged him. They field tested it. But guess what, Steve? He wasn't quite the expert he thought. <laughs> it was good stuff, huh? Tested positive for meth. Yeah. He wanted he wanted the other folks to arrest the people who sold him the fake stuff because fake methamphetamine is bad, and he wanted to put the other person in trouble. However, he didn't know the guy's name, which you rarely get the person's name who's selling you dope in a bar. So he was arrested, charged with possession of methamphetamine, possession of drug paraphernalia, and has a $7,000 bond. And the Hernando County Sheriff's Office offers a public service. They say if you have doubt about the authenticity of any illegal narcotics you have on hand or have obtained from another person, we provide this testing free of charge. Unbelievable. I think this guy gets the Dumbass of the Year award. Oh, dumbass of the year. Anyway, Steve, stolen car. You ever had a stolen car report? You ever yes, going to take one when you're in Krusty Crotch there, Blue blue Fold, you know, whatever it is, West Virginia? Yes, we did. And so normally when you get a stolen car and they return it, you know, it's you, there might be a couple things missing, right? But mm-hmm. if there's too much missing, is it any more stolen car or is it just simply parts? Well, that's the question we ask. Stolen car found. A stolen vehicle was recovered at the corner of Linden Street and Hillside Boulevard on Thursday. The car was intact except for... Missing vinyl top, front and rear seats, airbags, dashboard, transmission, engine, and both license plates. They left the tires? Apparently left the tires in the frame, but it was intact otherwise. (laughs) Except for everything else missing and the glove box. The glove box was still there. It was intact. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Mm, okay. And let's finish this up. This is a, the, you guys want to hear this. You got to go over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We just recorded our uh, March 2022 random surprise episode it's called literally you can't make this shit up but we thought we would give you one of the stories we covered in that and steve and i both decided this was the winner and it's like so if you're going to plan a burglary what's one of the people you don't want to know about it right you don't want the cops to know about it steve but unfortunately for this dude um he was referring this happened in new jersey he was planning a burglary with his pal he's sitting down he butt dials 911 and the people at the dispatch center, hear it. His number is on the 911 call, and police are pretty smart. They, they use the number. They figure out who it belongs to. They tied two burglaries in the home or in the area to this guy, and uh, they went and arrested him, and it's all caught on tape. <laughs> what well, the, guy, the guy took $1,355 in jewelry, another $11,300 in jewelry, electronics, handgun, and U.S. bonds. So, uh, but, but it's all caught on tape. I, you know, can you imagine being the guy that's in there and you go, well, how'd you guys find me? Well, you called us. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Here's yes, you did. Ta- here's the tape. <laughs> and here's your sign. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but you know oh. what? That's just, that's a great example of some of the idiots that are out there committing crimes. And that's some of the, and a great example of some of the things you can hear on our Patreon channel, too. So come on over and listen to the rest come of Come on over there. Well, hey, speaking of what you're going to hear now. Okay, we got it. You, you Canadians, you, you, the reason we haven't brought anybody on because you guys disappointed us. You fell to third place in the in the international rankings of who's Fourth listening to us. Place. Fourth no, place. third place because the United States is first. So it was Canada, or it was uh, the UK, Australia, then Canada. Yeah. So, but in terms of international, our international winners, they rate third. So we got to get you back up to second or first in international folks. So, so we did. Um, 
through the through the good gracious uh, graces of Steve Matelski, who was on one of our previous episodes talking about the uh, gangsters in the velour jumpsuits who bring people into the mafia at Motel Six and then head on over to the buffet. Uh, Canadian, he got a hold of Stephen Smith, and Stephen Smith. Well, this is I got to tell you. First of all, we had a good time talking with him. We're busting chops because he's from Canada. And we know somebody in common. We knew I knew his former uh, deputy and his chief, a uh, guy named Kim Derry, which we'll talk about. But this, Steve, I think this is a great story. This just shows you these are the types of detectives you want working for you. Why is why is the work, especially on cold cases, so important? And this case that he works on, that he solves because he attended a two-week training, heard about the Golden State Killer case and the use of familial DNA, genetic genealogy. Uh, and there's a difference. We'll talk to you guys about the differences between the two. I'm telling you, I was in, when we got done, I was like, fucking A. I was inspired. I'm going like, what a hell of a job. Absolutely. And I knew very, very little about DNA. So it's it's great to hear what's being done with it. Uh, it's fantastic that they're able to, to use uh, what's available to, to them now in technology to solve cold case, cold cases. You know, if you've had a missing uh, member, and we don't want to go too far into the story because we want you to hear it from him, but, you know, talk about, if you call it bringing closure or just giving the family an answer of what happened to a loved one, it's, that's huge. That's one of the biggest things. And and these guys, they took the bull by the horns. They didn't know anything about it. They learned, then they went and taught themselves more, and they're continuing to learn as they go. So they're doing a phenomenal job in Toronto. And one way to hear about this phenomenal job they did is you got to hear the episode and the only way you can hear the episode is for me to ask Murph once again are you ready to play the biggest baddest most dangerous game of all this game we call game of crimes yeah baby everybody get in sit down shut up and hold on let's bring on Steve Smith and let's learn about DNA Canada. I'm sorry, we're supposed to start off this episode because we've got uh, so many complaints from people. When are we going to get another person from Canada? Well, we found somebody from Canada, and apparently he doesn't have anything to do because he's dressed in a suit and tie, hanging out in the office. So, hey, everybody, welcome back. Morgan Wright here at Game of Crimes. I am here with Mr. Murph. So, Hello, everyone. For the purposes of this, because we got two Steves, Steve Murphy will be only referred to as Murph, but our guest of honor is a detective with the Toronto Police Service. And we actually found out we, we have somebody in common. We know. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Steve Smith, welcome to Game of Crimes. Woohoo! How you doing, fellas? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on here. That's, uh, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's hold back until we get done with the podcast. We'll see. Well, he's fine with me. You're the questionable one. But we'll see how that goes. I know. Goes. That's cool. But uh, yeah. it's it's a testament to the Canadian police that our listeners want to have more of you guys on there, guys and ladies. When I say guys, it's all inclusive. Uh, we had Pam Barnum on there. We had Steve Matelski. We got you. Now we And we've got another did guy ever, that we're going to reach out to. Yeah. Did you ever run into Pam Barnum when she was a federal prosecutor? No, I haven't. I uh, I saw her on your website, but I uh, I've never met her. Okay. Don't well, she dives off. out of cars at 15, 20 miles an hour working, you know, Hell's Angels gangs. So, you know, typical day in Canada there. Hey, I'm tired of this, eh? Let's just bail, okay? <laughs> We're afraid of her. <laughs> it's natural. We, we, we do that for training. Just <laughs> jump out of moving cars. Bunch of tough guys up there. Tough guys I do it ladies. with Murph. If you've seen how Murph drives, you're going to bail out of him before you get too far, too. So That's right. Well, you, can be the, you can be the leader. You can be the follower. follower. I'm going to be the leader here. I'm going to be the leader in the highway. 
he's going to be the leader as he drives off, you know, into the pond there, and we don't find him for three days. So that's why we that's why we tell everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and shut hold up. on. Here we go. We're going to have fun. So, Steve, let's talk a little bit about you, as we do with everybody. You are in Toronto. But before we get started about your big career in Toronto, we were talking, we have somebody in common. I was asking if you knew Kim Derry. So, you know, let everybody know first who Kim Derry is or was with you guys. Kim Derry retired as our uh, chief of police. He made his way up through uh, all our different squads and uh, and eventually retired as the chief of police under Bill Blair, who was the chief at the time. And, and how, big, this... how big is Toronto police, just so everybody knows? Yeah, that's what it's getting rated at. Uh, it's about uh, 7,000 officers, maybe a little bit less. Um, it's a little bit bigger than Bluefield, West Virginia. Yeah, we're that's. We're getting close to ten thousand people with uh, with civilians and such. I, I think we're a little bit less now. I think we're down uh, probably around five thousand officers and about five, four or five thousand civilians. So. Wow. Hey, and Steve, for the next part of my story, kind of tell folks how big of a guy is Kim Deary. Oh, he's massive. He's huge. Uh, yeah, he's. I don't even know how tall he is. He must be six six. Uh, Two twenty-five, two thirty, easy. Oh, more? No, I guarantee you. So let me tell you the story of why that was important. So <laughs> I knew Kim. Um, we were actually ran. So uh, when after Hurricane Katrina happened, we were supposed to have the International Chiefs of Police Conference in New Orleans, and they were very concerned whether or not they're going to have it or not. Could they rebuild it in time? Could stuff? Well, it ended up being done, and so. We go down to this conference and we're staying, our hotels are on Bourbon Street. And, you know, we, we take these little buses to get to, uh, you know, get to some of the areas where these events are happening. And I had just come back from an event, stepped off of a bus. Now, my right knee was kind of tweaked. I don't remember what I did. I stepped in something wrong, but I mean, I was kind of hurt and I mean, it was, could barely stand up. And I'm walking down the street and all of a sudden, this big son of a bitch hops onto my back and goes, Morgan! And I almost fall. My knee is all jacked up to begin with. It was Kim Deary, all six foot six and 250 pounds, hops on my back and goes, hey. Yeah, I could see that being a bit of a problem. <laughs> hey, now, so, we, I didn't think we were going to tell those kind of stories on our show, man. What's wrong with you, Morgan? Well, well, you know, there was some drinking involved. We were in the, the, the you know, the. Those um, stories are okay. The French Quarter of, uh, you know, we were walking up and down Bourbon Street, so it was a great time. That was a great uh, event. But uh, Kim, yeah, I said, Kim, you're one heavy son of a bitch. I was surprised I didn't fall over and crash. Anyway, that was kind of our story to lead into this. So let's talk about you now, Steve. Um, how long have you been with the, the Toronto Police Service? Uh, about 25 years now, just over 25 years. So started in 96. Was this your first department or did you work anywhere else? It was. So during university, I worked at uh, Canada Border Services, but as a uh, part-time um, student. So I worked in the summers and in evenings uh, through university. So do you have many Americans trying to cross the border into Canada illegally, trying to flee the United States? Actually, they just rolled right in. We just let them in. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your tax Not money. anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a lot yeah. different now. That and trucks, too. We, we understand trucks are a big concern, at least for a while. Up there <laughs> they were Canada. a bit of a problem up here for a while. Holy cow. So, hey, uh, but let's talk about that. What what interested you in police work? You said you were going to university. What were you studying? I was studying political science and business, actually. Um, and when I started working at Canada Border Services, I played uh, baseball and hockey. So I started playing baseball and hockey. Well, with, naturally. Yeah, football, of course, hockey, hockey of course. you know. <laughs> I was at the Heritage <laughs> Classic yesterday outside. It was pretty cold. But <laughs> we had it in a football stadium. Oh, what position in baseball did you play? Uh, in baseball? Usually, uh, usually left field. 
So do you have the arm? Yeah, I could play anywhere except third base. Couldn't play third base. Didn't have the arm for third base. Got it. <laughs> anywhere right. else I could play. And you and you know you know you're number nine on the batting order when they put you in right field too. Yeah, so. exactly. That's a tough one. <laughs> That's a tough one. So, uh, but, but what were you planning on going into when you were studying this political science and business stuff? You know, actually, I wanted to go into law. I wanted to uh, actual actually become a lawyer. So I was looking at that. For God's sakes, why? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's something that interested me all along. And then uh, then I got into university. And by the end of university, I didn't want to do any more university. So I didn't want to go to law school <laughs> at that point. So I but figured I'd take the easy real road. Job. Exactly. You got a real job then. That's right. So uh, uh, how long would have law school have been for you had you gone to university? Had you gone to, to it right out of university? It would have been two years, two to three years, depending. Okay. Well, how did you come across this Canadian Border Services job? Was that just a job posting, summer internship? How did it start? So I went to Brock University, which is in St. Catharines, Niagara region. So we were right by the uh, Niagara border. So obviously you have the uh, the three border crossings in Niagara. And through, our, uh, through the university, they would post... Um, job openings there for summer students and uh and evening work and i just applied and i was uh i was hired so i started working that it was a great job it was a lot of fun a lot of students from all over uh, canada would come and, and work during the summer there so and if i remember right one of the big issues too was um uh i mean we call them native americans i think you refer to them as indigenous people or yep yeah. yeah. Some of that too was the trafficking in, in like alcohol or guns or some did you guys run into any of the trafficking issues there in Niagara? You know, not really in Niagara. I mean, we had people smuggling a little bit of booze and stuff, but we didn't have uh, a whole lot of problems there. Every once in a while, you know, your Americans would come up with their guns. Um most well, of them God. would <laughs> Most of them would declare right wing rifle carrying Christian <laughs> farmers, of course. Exactly. You guys Mar aren't it's America. America. That's right. You guys aren't giving up your guns for anything. But actually, <laughs> nah. most of them are pretty good. They would come up and they'd actually admit that they had it. We'd hold it for them and such. Um, we did find, you know, a number of guns, uh, a lot of drugs, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what we had coming through. A lot of cheese. You know, cheese is very expensive in Canada. So people were running cheese up from the Wait US. Wait a minute. <laughs> Really? Who was considered the who was considered the Pablo Escobar of cheese smuggling? I know. I, I got know. four kilos of rope for today. What did you get? It's probably worth more than cocaine up here. I got I got some smoked gouda. It's going two for one today. You got to be right, careful. Man. Don't tell too many people. You'll get robbed on the way up. Oh man. <laughs> Jeez, I can't believe that. Cheese yeah. cheese smugglers. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was cigarettes? cigarettes? Oh yeah, lots of problem. cigarettes. Yeah, lots of cigarettes because of the duty and taxes we pay up here. So we'd find all kinds of cartons of cigarettes, that sort of thing. I mean at the time wow. I worked there, the uh border services weren't armed, right? They're all armed now, but uh when I worked there we didn't have guns, so um you know, it was it was interesting. It was interesting See, sometimes. We finally won you guys over. You started carrying yeah. guns. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Except now I had a pal of mine on the Ontario Provincial Police. He was up in uh, Timmins, home of Shania Twain, uh, South Porcupine Detachment, mm -hmm. uh, just to be very specific. But um, 
they a lot of them, you know, they they left. They couldn't take their weapons home with them. You guys couldn't carry uh, concealed off duty, or at least they couldn't up there. Yeah, you can't carry uh, up here even to this day unless you get authorization from the chief of police. You can't carry your weapons off duty. You can take them home if you have a a gun safe and proper storage, and you have proper storage in your vehicle to take it home. But uh, it's not like the U.S. Uh, I mean, I was down there for some uh, some police Olympics and stuff, and. You know, all the fellas have one on their hip and one on their uh, ankle. It's uh, it's not like that up here. We don't uh, we don't carry off duty. Well, see, it's it's the American way. It's the first rule of gunfights. You know, bring lots of guns. Rule number two: bring lots of friends with guns. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, that that South Porcupine Station. That's a, that's a strange name. That sounds like a very prickly post to work at. Huh? Yeah, there's some interesting <laughs> ones up north. Speaking of pricks, thank you very much, Steve uh, Murph. We'll be back to our reg- uh, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So what was the what was the most interesting seizure you had coming across the border um it was a big seizure of drugs i mean we pulled someone over to the uh the side i mean why they stopped with a trunk full of drugs i'm not sure whether they knew it was there or not but uh we opened it and it was just full of cocaine i think there was 36 bricks of cocaine in his trunk trunk so no well, attempt to conceal it Damn. no no attempt to conceal it just right in the back blanket over the top and they were going to roll right through i mean who knows how many times they may have got through or not but uh at that point we uh we were able to take it out so not oh. the smartest people out there that's why they're... yeah i guess they're, they're the <laughs> ones being paid to bring it over right they aren't the ones uh making all the money <laughs> off of it well you Idiots. know Idiots. unlike the patreon episodes we're recording right now uh two of steve's friends uh chris feistel and uh, dave mitchell were the one season three of Narcos was made about the Cali cartel, but they were talking about one of the big seizures they had were, what was it, Steve, 20 tons or whatever hidden inside concrete fence posts. 12 tons, 12 tons. 12 tons. Jesus. I can't even imagine what you would do with 12 tons. (laughs) Sell it, make a lot of money and retire someplace warm, right? Steve, what's the temperature again there? (laughs) If you're you're in in Oregon or Washington state, that's personal use up there. That's personal use. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who gets to weigh yeah. 12 tons? <laughs> it was well, fun. <laughs> there was a big discussion about whether they, they removed the, the cement officer? before they weighed it. <laughs> I think a lot of it was just estimating. They call it Kentucky windage. Okay, this one weighs this. We got 12 of these. Let's just take a wild guess. You know, it's the largest seizure of concrete, you know, in DEA history. So. <laughs> there, there happens to be a little cocaine attached. By the way. Anyway, so back to our regular scheduled podcast. So, uh, how long? So, was he, was this just a summer job, or did you do this full time for a while, looking to get into the cop work? No, it was actually. Um, so, when I did graduate from university, I graduated. Wait a I minute, guess. you said when I did. It sounded like you had a troubled. When I finally <laughs> did graduate. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I did eventually graduate, and uh, <laughs> I was forty-seven. Yes. Yeah. That was, I think that was April. I applied to the Toronto police in June. I was hired by July to start in August. So it, uh, it went pretty quick. That was just, that was just as Toronto police was uh, opening up. I actually applied to OPP Toronto and, um, and the RCMP. So I was hired first by Toronto. What does that tell you? Yeah. Canada has low standards if they can hire you in a month. No background check. Hey, dude, they trust everybody. Hey, have you done anything wrong? No, not not that I recall. Okay, good. I think at that point, Toronto only had one hiring in about eight years. So they were hiring no 300 kidding. over the course of that year. So they were uh, they were really trying to pump people through. Why, why the, Dang. you know, why the... Uh, 
lack of hiring during that time? Taxes, money? Yeah, it's budget? just uh, budget, right? Our budget wasn't expanding to the point where we could uh, we could hire at those points. So they, they didn't hire for a long streak. So even when I came on, um, most of the people that I was working with had a minimum of about eight years on the job. So it was good for, wow. for learning. That's like being the youngest kid in your family and your oldest is eight years older than you. When you're in kindergarten, <laughs> they're graduating, you know, middle school. And that's exactly what it was like. We knew nothing and they knew everything. And <laughs> we just tried to keep our mouth shut and learn. <laughs> uh, well, Smart. so uh, how long was your academy? Um, so it, it was about three months at uh, Elmer, Ontario. So the Ontario Police College. And then Toronto added at that point another three months on top of that. So we, we were in about six months before we were actually deployed. Oh, Is that man. just to cover the the... Store the ordinances and statutes in Toronto proper, or um, it you know, Toronto's just such a unique city. I mean, when you're going to the Ontario Police College, you're learning basically from across the province, so you're learning all kinds of different different types of things. I mean, even like into farming stuff that doesn't really apply to Toronto. And then you come back to Toronto, um, they want to do their own uh, use of force stuff, their own shooting. Um, their own fitness stuff um, and teach you the intricacies of Toronto and working in the uh, the big city, right? Well, that that part at the at the college that qualified to be a trooper in Kansas, then wasn't it? All the farming <laughs> crap. Hey, let me tell you, you steal a lot. You, we actually had classes on farming equipment. They called them instead of VINs, the vehicle identification number. They were called PINs, product identification numbers. You go out and you steal a Bobcat or you steal some construction equipment. Those things would go for sixty, seventy thousand dollars very quickly, you know, uh, uh, on mm -hmm. the black market. So yeah, Steve, and in Anna, we were actually uh, seizing a lot more stuff than you did. And what was it? Steve is from some little town in West Virginia. I think it rhymes with crusty crotch, something like that. Blue crab. Bluefield. Um, Blowfield. Blofeld. Hey, wasn't Blofeld a James Bond character too? Blofeld. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So Steve, let's talk about you now instead of, uh, di you know, dissing on Murph. Um, <laughs> yeah. so six, you said you didn't want to go back to school and yet here you are six months of training. <laughs> you could have been halfway to being in a lawyer in Canada by then. Well, this one, a lot of it's physical. So I, uh, I enjoyed that a little more instead of just, uh, writing reports and writing, uh, essays and, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So it was, you know, I, it was learning, which I enjoyed the learning part. I just didn't enjoy writing all the, uh, the papers and such that went with it funny i had a couple training officers like that it's like now nah, we didn't see that just you know it's too close to end a shift so let's just go <laughs> no no paperwork tonight um so so tell us about how, what is the life of a toronto police officer as you're starting off so how long are you in a field training program you know before they decide to uh, take a chance and release you so basically as soon as you graduate from the college they assign you to a division within a uh, uniform division within the city. So I went to uh 51 division which was considered Regent Park at the time. So it was uh it's basically lower east side Toronto. It was uh probably one of the most depressed areas of the city. Um a lot of crime, a lot of uh, Isn't bars. Isn't every area named Lower East Side, you know, anytime Seems you like say it. lower you say lower east side of Chicago, lower east side, you know, of New York. Yeah, the exact, and that's exactly, there was a lot of public housing, um, almost the whole division was public housing. I mean, we did have some some um, spots where there were very nice houses and such, but there, it was dotted with public housing, and it was one of the most dense areas in Toronto, um, all the high-rises. You had the, all the shelters were in that area, so um, it brought in a whole different, like, 
people from all kinds of different uh, walks of life. So you were dealt with with everything there was down there at the time. It was uh, it was a little bit overwhelming when, when when you went down there and started your shift, and it just it was just go 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 from the moment kind you like stepped whack, out I there. I mean, you're going call to call to call to call, and just mm-hmm. paperwork's piling up. And um, so, what was the what was the uh, prevalent crime down there? What were the major what not, I don't mean major crimes, but major categories of crime, or what were the you know top two, three, four things that were always you guys were dealing with down there? Well, I mean, drugs. Drugs was a big thing, right? And everything was based off of that. I mean, it was an area where there was a lot of drug addicts. There was a lot of people, obviously, supplying the drugs. And from there, you had everything else. You had your break and enters, your robberies, your break and enters to vehicles, uh, thefts, like you name it. Um, and then, of course, with the drug trade comes the violence. So you'd have your shootings, your uh, your your um, gang-related murders, your stabbings, your you name it. It we had everything down there. There was a little bit of everything that we had. What drugs were the most prevalent back then? What drugs? Um, back then, it was um, it was uh, crack cocaine usually. So that's what we saw most down there was crack cocaine. Um, there was some pills being utilized. Um, didn't see much heroin down there, really, um, but it was mostly crack cocaine at the time. A little bit of methamphetamines, um, a little bit of uh, pills. Was anybody uh, shooting up Munster or Roquefort or Blue Cheese? Or <laughs> no, no, the, the the cheese didn't make it that far. <laughs> the cheese didn't make it that far. Well, at least we were safe from smuggled cheese in That's Toronto. Right. Exactly. That would have caused. Uh, who knows what that would have caused? They were all a bunch of cheddar freaks down there. They couldn't get yeah, cheddar heads. Uh, cheese heads, like in Wisconsin, eh? So, uh, but but Steve, you know, the, the interesting part about that too is it, it's funny you mentioned that too because so many areas drugs kind of seems to be. People say, you know, why do you focus on drugs? It's like, you know, if people had self-control, you know, it'd be a better world. But the problem is you start introducing this stuff and then it does lead to other things. It leads to an increase in property crime and it leads to an increase in violent crime. And when you go to areas to where the drug use is low, it's down, then there's a corresponding decrease in a lot of those same crimes, right? So That's I mean, right. uh, Canada's nice people, but still when people get crack, when they get meth or they do other stuff, then you got the gang activity, the criminal activity, the cartel activity. And when we talked to Stephen Metelsky, I mean, we were shocked at the uh, amount of organized crime that was going on up in that area. We thought you guys were nice. Here you are bringing mobsters in in velour jumpsuits to come to a, what was it, a Motel, <laughs> Motel 6. Motel 6 and swear people in uh, La Cosa Nostra, you're one of ours, now where's the buffet? You know. Yeah, well, I mean, I worked five years in the drug squad as well, and it's uh, the difference is because what, what you guys pay for, say, a kilo of Coke in the U.S., um, you can seven times that up here. And if you cut it, you can 10 times what you're paying for it down there. If you can smuggle it up here, you can sell it for 10 times what you paid for it down there. Right. So it's, uh, the money's huge. So you've got a, that aspect where the, the dealers and importers are making huge money, which brings the violence because of the money. And then just like you stated, then you've got the addicts as well that um, increase your property crime and your uh, break-ins, that your break-in autos, those sort of things, because they need money to to pay for their next fix, right? And it's a whole cycle that starts over yep. again. I'm done with my fix. I got to get another fix. I don't have money. So let me go steal something, rob somebody, do something. And then this whole cycle starts over again. So how long did you work patrol before? What was your next position out of patrol? So you're working patrol. How long are you there before you move up to your next position? So I worked patrol for about 
a year and then I went to the uh, community foot patrol. So that was basically, um, it, it's basically patrol, but on foot inside the, um, inside some of the public housing. So we'd go and we'd walk the public housing. Um, we'd keep an eye on the residents, see what was going on in there, make sure everybody was safe. Um, just be seen in the community, be out in the community and be in there. I worked that for about six months. And then I went to the, uh, the detective office. So I did six months training in the detective office. And then I went to the plainclothes office for six months. So, Wait a minute. Now, you're not even two years on the job and you've already had three months of the academy, three months of the Toronto Academy, and then six months of training. So it's like you've had more training than you've had time on the street by this point. <laughs> I know. And, and the thing is, because the training program is available, which is where they put you through all those different um, offices so you can you can get a little bit of experience doing all the different types of jobs um, but because everyone had eight years on the job they'd all been through the training program so we were actually at that point lucky because we we're able to get into the training program very early on without having to compete against other people for slots and everything else that had seniority because you all you know and, and I'm kind of joking but that's one of the biggest I think issues police work faces right now is people you, you know we go through I don't know how much you went through it in Canada and we we stay apolitical here but we talk about you know the issues and one of the issues is there were certain people saying let's defund the police well you defund the police you defund training which is that's one of the things you don't want to do you defund firearms training you don't want to do that you defund you know, defensive tactics. You don't want to do that. I mean, so what kind of issues were you guys dealing with? I mean, at that time, uh, was there, how was the community support for you? And did you guys deal with something similar up there even now? Yeah. I mean, we've went through it a little bit as well, but our community support is pretty good up here. I mean, we, we really have, our service really works to work with the community up here to establish um, inroads into the community so that we all work together to come up with the best possible solutions. I mean, as you guys know, the last thing anybody wants is somebody get to get hurt in a police interaction, whether it's an officer or someone that's uh, being arrested, someone with mental health issues. So we work with the community and we work, obviously, our training um, is to the point where we're, we're trying to um, provide a zero injury factor for anyone involved in a police interaction. I know these people that think the cops are just out there to, to shoot people or hurt people. You know, maybe there's a, a very, very, very small percentage, and I'm saying less than 1%, I mean, like maybe one one hundredth or one one thousandth of a percent of idiots that would get on the police department and want to hurt somebody. But the vast, 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 overwhelming majority of law enforcement professionals are all about helping the public. I agree. I mean, that's the last thing anybody who wants to do is have to use one of your use of force options, right? I mean, we do everything in our power to not have to use that. But as you know, sometimes, sometimes in policing, there's no other options, which is unfortunate. But anything that we can do to mitigate that, we'll, we will do. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, least le least, less lethal options now. Um, the shotguns, the uh, pepper spray, the tasers, um, anything that we can utilize to not have to uh, use not lethal, have to force. lethal force. Yeah. That's right. Did you have to go, did you go through taser training? I did. I went through taser training. Yeah. Did you get tased? I did. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I figured, yeah, I could fight through this. No problem. I lasted about a second and a half and I was on the ground. Just, I've never felt anything like that in my life. 
Did they catch and, you before you went down? <laughs> yeah, they caught me. But it, it <laughs> like, I, it took, it completely took away. Like, I, I, you guys have probably went through it as well. And it just. Oh, no, not Taser. Went through no? OC. We'll talk about it. No, no. Because they didn't have Tasers back in our day. That, you know, with Steve, they just had the bow, the arrow. You know, yeah. the six shooter. You know, um, he had a he he had a four legged horse. Though that was the good thing about West Virginia. All the, all the horse, horses had more legs than they had teeth, just like most yeah, of the but, population. But you know, you can tell a West Virginia horse is one. The two legs on one side are longer than on the other side. It's got to go up and down the mountains. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Hey, but but um, the other thing too, I you know, people think about too about tasers. It's like when when it works. I mean, it really works. But the other thing too is. You kind of got to make sure don't drink a lot of liquids and don't, you know, load up on stuff oh. before you get tased. I, like I said, I've never felt anything like that. It, it took away any, like, there's, I don't understand how, if these people fight through it, how they do that. Because, you know, the the ones that do, though, it's like, I don't I don't know if you dealt with, Dave, did you ever deal with anybody who was dusted, you know, on PCP or, you yeah. know, really, you know, That's some right. of those people, they, they have no threshold for pain. And it's like, sometimes mm -hmm. I think there are some people who just their bodily, their body composition, their physiology just says, Hey, that's not going to affect me that much where the taser, the probes don't get in there. But man, there yeah. are a couple of times I only dealt with a couple people that we really knew were on PCP, but man, it's like it, it took 10 people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thank absolutely. God. Thank God. Those are few and far between. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy when they, uh, when they get that sort of strength and stuff. And I mean, we have the added layer up here where, we have our winters, so people are wearing big bulky coats and stuff. So the taser's tough to tough to utilize sometimes in the winter. So we've gone to, to the less lethal shotgun now. So well, no, you're just Canadian. You say, "Hey, uh, sorry, pal, I got to tase you." So would you mind just taking off your coat there? Okay, yeah, but would you hit just, me just, up just here so it doesn't hurt? That's, that's, I don't want it, you to get cold. It could be a negotiation. We we could try that. <laughs> uh, hey, but well, uh, did you ever go through the OC training? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't like that either. Um, no, nah, yeah, I went that, through that. So the one thing you learn, right? And I missed, I, you didn't hear it. But the one thing is that oleo resin capsicum, basically it's cayenne pepper. And they, it used to be alcohol-based. When we first started using it, it was alcohol-based. It would evaporate very quickly. Well, the, 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 the remedy for that is to, you know, irrigation, open air, you know. But we had to go, we, we did this before work, so we had to go take a shower so what they said is, whatever you do, just keep tilt your head forward, keep it forward. Well, I've missed that part. So you shampoo your hair and what you do, tilt your head back. And the OC in my hair ran down my back, yeah. into my crack. Oh, TMI. And let me tell you, you talk about it. I've never felt something like that before. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a tough one. I mean, I, I remember when we took ours, they put us all in a big room and they sprayed it into the room. And uh, you had to see how long you could last. And when that stuff got on your head and into your eyes, oh, my God, that was... Uh, that was interesting. Anything? Pardon? You didn't have to talk? Did you have you to had say to, anything? While yeah, you, you had to come out, and then you had to go through a whole, uh, uh, you had to try to fight through it and, and make your way to a certain spot and, and say a few words. And say, it was, uh, it was not, not a fun time. Yes, <laughs> well, I remember we had to say the alphabet inside that trailer before you could get out. Oh, really? Yeah. And if your instructor well, was a real jackass, you had to do it the Greek alphabet. Alphabet, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, theta, kappa, lambda, nu, du, zymar, karm, pyro, sigma, tau, epsilon, pi, chi, omega. There it is. But don't ask me to say it backwards. But uh, basic training. Fort we didn't Lundra, want you to say it July forward. 1979. Went through the gas chamber. You know what is outside every 
gas chamber in the damn United States at every army installation is a big fucking tree. You, they say, don't run, don't get scared, just walk out. And there's a reason the tree's out there because we had several people go running out of the gas chamber, <laughs> boom, right into that tree. <laughs> don't, don't run. Don't. Pa- the biggest thing is don't panic. That's you true. Know? That's true. Try to fight through it, right? Anyway, mm. back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So, Steve, now that we've established that you've been both tased and sprayed and, you know, lo- the Bro. life of S&M is not for you because he, <laughs> I'm not going through that shit again. Um, so let's start kind of going down your glide path uh, into investigation. So when did your first full-time role in investigations come up? So after I'd finished my training program, I went back on the road for about another six months. And then we were taken to a, a newly formed unit. We'd had a, a lot of shootings down in uh, in our area in 51 Division. So the unit commander at the time, uh, Ron Tavner, set up a, a specialty unit to actually deal with the shootings and make sure that they they stopped in the area. So I was placed into that. Um, it was originally a two-year spot. I think I lasted about a year in there, and then I moved on to the the drug squad, the street team drug squad. What do you mean squad. you lasted a year? You couldn't take it anymore, or just? Oh uh... no, I got offered the spot at the drug squad, okay. so I went, I went there. <laughs> See, it's the language. It's like, well, I finally graduated. <laughs> yeah. I barely made it through university, and I only lasted a year. What you you know the proper way to say is. I did time. I was in there for a year, and then this great opportunity came up. But when you say I only lasted a year, I'm going. Dude, this is your like ninth assignment. You've only been on four years. So. I'm not used to talking about myself. Uh, that's why. That's why we love this podcast. See, feel free to give him the finger. That's why you know, my nose gets itchy every once in a while. I get to send a subliminal message here. It's not so subliminal. So, uh, but back, but back to you, Steve, not Murph, the other Steve. Um, so uh, you got in. So tell us about this new assignment. Then you were on. You were on this one squad for a year. This other opportunity came up, and you seized the opportunity. What was I that? did? It was uh, the drug squad. So the Toronto drug squad. So it was basically the uh, the city drug squad. The city was broken down into three basic. Uh, areas so there was the east drugs where i went so we did uh basically the scarborough area of toronto which is uh east east toronto then there's a there was a downtown crew and a west crew um so we kind of base basically split up the city into three different districts so i worked out of uh out of the east drugs and we uh we would we'd go out and buy drugs um work our way up in projects that sort of thing out in uh, east toronto were you guys doing street level undercover we were, yeah, street level. That's what we were doing. Any, any long-term undercover? Uh, no, not for me. I wasn't the greatest undercover. I was more the warrant writer and uh, road boss, that sort of thing. Um, undercover wasn't my thing. Why were you challenged with undercover? You just didn't like it, or did you like me? I only worked undercover once. I had to be like a banker because I looked too much like a cop, so they put me in a tie. To f- my my greatest undercover role was 30 seconds of flashing a money roll at a bank, and that was it. Well, you know, one of the things when I went up there, we were uh, we were lucky. We had some unbelievable undercover officers, so I didn't really have to, to do the job. I, I don't know if I would have really liked it anyway, but, I mean, we had four or five people that were uh, both men and women that were phenomenal at it, so we let them do their job, and we took on other roles. Did you guys work jointly at all with the RCMP? Did you guys have any kind of joint? Because you guys don't have the equivalent of a drug enforcement administration up there, do you? No, we don't. Uh, the RCMP here, at least in Ontario... Um, they just do major projects like they don't do uh, street level stuff, really. They do uh, organized crime, major projects. We do have a group that works um, 
out of Toronto OPP and RCMP combination, but they basically do uh, large scale projects. And can you explain OPP for us, please? Uh, Ontario Provincial Police. So they're basically the police through Ontario. So anywhere outside of a major municipality that has its own police service, uh, the OPP does policing there. They do contract policing in small towns, um, rural areas, uh, but they also do a lot of, uh, um, they're funded by the, the provincial government instead of municipal government. So they do a lot of policing within uh, major metropolitan areas in conjunction with the, uh, the services from those areas. Geographically, from, just from a standpoint, just give us an idea, uh, because we call them states, but you call them provinces. How many provinces does Canada have? Oh, see, now you're going to make me see, count. geography tested. Okay. I, I have to yeah. report this to the chief. I know. <laughs> Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I believe, and two territories. And, yeah, and, and I wish I wish our listeners could see us because you can see his eyes move as he's going. I, on. I, I I'm counting, to, I'm counting to, from British Columbia over. I, I had to take my shoes off to count that high. <laughs> He's wondering now why the hell he decided to come on this stuff. He didn't know, there's I didn't know you guys were going to give me, like, hard questions. <laughs> well, here's the next hard question. No, um, but did you guys, was there a new province uh, created somewhere near Newfoundland? I mean, I thought there was something, or, uh, I mean, I didn't know if how, how long the provinces have been around. I was trying to remember. I thought that there was, like, a new province over by Newfoundland or that area there. No, no new provinces as of yet. Um we we did create two uh, northern territories, so and, um, I think it's actually three northern territories now. But uh, we haven't created any new provinces as of yet uh, until Montreal and Quebec decide to try and secede again, right? Yeah, or we decide to take over the U.S. We haven't decided yet, so make, <laughs> make down, it a big province. <laughs> apparently, apparently the border's more open coming south than it is going north, so you got a good yeah. chance. <laughs> We, we've got a better, we get a better relationship with you guys than anybody. So you think that you think they're all just snowbirds down in Florida. Those are actually our undercovers. They're just setting up shop down there for, for us to come down. And that buddy of mine, I told you it was in uh, OPP up in Timmins. He retired. So him and his wife, guess where they spend six months a year down yeah, in Florida. Florida. Yeah. He's setting up a base of now that you've said that I've got to contact Homeland Security. <laughs> This is a sleeper cell. He's establishing down in Florida, disguising it with bocce ball and golfing. That's right, and five o'clock dinners. <laughs> oh yeah, no, Blue, don't get Blue. don't get in the way. Blue plate <laughs> early special. Bird special. <laughs> Holy cow! You know, and, so, it's such um, a stigma. There's such a stigma associated with that, like that. Because my wife and I we were snowbirders before we moved to Orlando last year, and now we won't go to dinner till after the snow after the early bird's over. Because one, <laughs> they'll run up on the heel of your shoes. They'll run over with their damn wheelchairs and those little walker things they've got. And the other is they slobber on the food when they're at the buffet. You know, you want to wait and get a new branch of food out there. Uh, all the secrets exposed, yes. <laughs> oh, and so, they steal all the salt and all the, the sweetener off the table, too. <laughs> crime. Look at this crime wave we have down in Florida. So, Steve, so how long were you, uh, how long did you do drugs? So I did drugs for about a year and a half. And <laughs> what you do? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I hope the chief's not listening. Yeah. So I worked in drugs. <laughs> See, I told you, it's all about language. I, yeah, exactly. I worked on the street team for about a year and a half, and then I went to the uh, the major project section, so the major project heroin section. So we were actually doing uh, heroin importation through the uh, 
through Pearson International Airport and distribution in the community. So we were doing large scale projects on that. So I worked that for about a year and a half. And then I went back to the uh, to another street team, the downtown street team for about a year. Who were your major countries uh, that were importing the heroin? I mean, where were, where were your source countries coming from? You know, a lot of it was uh, was coming up through California. That's where we're finding it coming out of. So we weren't actually tracking it back through the sources, but a lot of our importers were picking up their uh, their heroin in California and bringing it up through there. And how were how was it most of it getting across? Were they were they coming in by boat over over you know over the uh, over the road, you know, in trucks, uh, what was kind of like some of your methods of concealment that they were doing? So with the heroin, some of it was, uh, the small planes, they were flying in in small planes. Some of it, they were shipping your California cars up here loaded with, uh, with drugs inside the vehicles when they were shipping them up to, uh, to places up here. And then that's the French connection all over. Again, exactly. Hiding, you know, heroin inside the car. That's right. And then, uh, well, obviously with the cocaine, um, was coming up through the Caribbean and they were putting it right into the, uh, right into the, um, luggage compartments of the, on the, um, planes. They were pulling it off that way. So did you work any cases there with DEA? Um, we did work a little bit with the DEA. Um, there was a few cases through Guyana and, and a few other things that we'd, uh, we'd crossed over with the DEA, DEA on those, uh, those type of things. A, a few Canadians got arrested down, uh, in the Caribbean with, uh, DEA information. And, uh, we were able to go down. Some of our officers were able to go down and, uh, and debrief them, bring them back up, and help us to uh, set up oh, here. Oh, there's a tough job. Who wants to volunteer to go to the Caribbean? It's zero <laughs> degrees in, in Toronto. Who wants to go to the Caribbean? No, and I don't. I like, I like the cold. Yeah, I was still too junior. I didn't get those trips. <laughs> in the late 80s and early 90s, we had a full-time RCMP guy stationed in our office in Miami. Yeah. I mean, talk about tough duty. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could out drink the guy. Either. Oh yeah, the RCMP have great. They have someone in every country, so those are uh, those are not bad gigs if you get the right country. Pretty I sweet guess. Job. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the legal attaches, the FBI, they're all over the place yeah, too. Exactly. Go, I, I'm gonna go to Roma. Let's go to Roma. <laughs> what a tough station. What's the Pope yeah. up to today? I don't know. Now we've established you haven't done drugs, but you work drugs for a while. So. Um, what's your glide path? Because it sounds like you've been investigations uh, in one form or fashion for the majority of your time, right? Yeah, for the majority of my time, that's what I've been uh, involved in investigations. So um, from there, I moved on to the repeat offender parole enforcement unit. So basically, it, it's a unit that's established to keep track of our parolees when they're allowed out. Um, so Is that giving them enough rope to hang themselves? <laughs> get it, rope, repeat offender, parole enforcement? Yeah. Get it, Steve? Exactly. Murph, get it, Murph? <laughs> I got it. I got it. I'm, I'm about to throw up, but I got it. So, yeah, those are great investigations, too. So when the parolees go on the run or, or whatever, we would track them down and bring them back so they'd serve the rest of their sentence or at least part so of the sentence. You were kind of the equivalent then. Uh, we, our episode that just dropped while we were talking about it here is a friend of mine, Bill Starukas, with the U.S. Marshals. So you, the other thing, you don't have an equivalent right of the U.S. Marshals. That's right. So you guys had to do your own fugitive uh, recovery, as they say, and you know go out and find the folks. Yeah, we actually, we would train with the U.S. Marshals a couple times a year. Um, they'd come up here, we'd go down there, and we'd train with uh, with the Marshals in, regard, in those regards. So it was uh, it was a good uh, um, working relationship with the uh, the Marshals. And that's kind of a fun, I mean, it's not something you, some people don't want to do it forever, but for the time you do, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a specialized unit like that, but when I wanted to track down a fugitive and I'm start working, it was kind of fun. I mean, it, it's the kind of the ultimate cat and mouse. Can I find you? 
you know, can I get you, you know, in spite of everything you're doing, it, it is kind of the ultimate cat and mouse game to go after some of these fugitives, especially the dangerous ones. That's true. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of, it's, it's very interesting to, to track these people. And I mean, you can't use the same sort of methods on every track, right? Because everybody's different. Everybody utilizes different scenarios and, and such. So, um, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, path to follow. You know, and there's an added benefit to that cross-training like that between the U.S. and Canada because you've got the contacts and, you you know, anybody that's ever been in any kind of business, if you've got contacts, that's how you get things done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when I ended up going to the uh, hold-up squad and we did track the Walter Bandit, we utilized the U.S. Marshals extensively um, because a lot mm -hmm. of the places in the U.S. that we had to serve warrants on, we were able to do it through the Marshal's office and the fact that you guys had a parole warrant for them, so that helped us out immeasurably, or else we would have been doing MLATs till probably today. Which yeah. are called Mutual Legal <laughs> Assistance yeah. Treaties. That's right. And those, uh, <laughs> yes, and that's why there's a few countries we don't have any MLATs with, and they start with, like, Iran, you know, North Korea, <laughs> Russia, China. So, so Cuba. Very difficult to get any investigations done in some of those places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, MLATs are also known as pains in the asses. Yeah, they're yeah. forever, forever, right? It's, yeah. uh, as you guys know, I mean, it just takes forever to get all the, the proper signatures all the way up through Ottawa and then back down, all the way up through Washington, back down, and uh, it's... Well, man, if you want to, if you want to exchange evidence, you got to go through the whole process again. That's right. Right. That's special little stamps and little seals and little ribbons and all kinds of bullshit on there. It just really slows the process. Oh, absolutely. Can we just smuggle it across the border with a load of cheese and get the evidence through that you way? You don't want to get caught with the cheese. That's a, that's a tough well, one. Rome is going to give away to the cheese dogs. <laughs> I'm putting a watch on you two when you come up. I know, I, I know you guys are going to be bringing blocks of cheese up with you. If I see a if I see a cheese sniffing canine, I am going to turn and run. If you see a cheese dog walking That's around right. the airport, yeah, he's, you he's know got how a you big, can tell which ones. He's got a big Go Green Bay cheese head on. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you know, you know how you can tell who the cheese sniffing canine is? Because he's got a he's got a little glass of wine and he needs to make sure he pairs it correctly with the right cheese. So and some grapes in the other hand. That's right. That actually doesn't Canadians sound bad. Canadians have it so easy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, uh, so let's let's start getting our glide path in then to uh, talking about what we're going to talk about here in a minute. But to do that, we need to set some context. So um, what is your current role? So my current role is uh, I'm an acting detective sergeant with the uh, Toronto Homicide Squad. So I'm in charge of uh, the subunits in homicide. So the cold case unit, the missing persons unit, uh, the, the forensic video unit, those sort of things. How big is your squad? Uh, our squad in total, if you counted everybody including our major case management would be close to 100 people uh, how big is the cold case caseload our cold case caseload um is we have about 700 unsolved cases maybe a few more now so every year we add about wow. 30 or 40 so we're up over 700 right now Jeez. how many how many homicides a year does toronto get uh, anywhere from 70 up to 100 i mean usually we're more in the 70 to 80 uh Ratio. Are you kidding? Philadelphia has already hit 100 homicides. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, say, we could, I we know. We can knock that out in our small little towns here, 70 to 100. Yeah, we're pretty safe here. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we hope to keep it that way. So uh, absolutely, yeah, we'll keep the Americans with their you know loads kilos of cheese. Well, out see, that's a big problem. Fine. There's a lot of money in cheese. Can't have those Americans <laughs> running it up here. I just can't, I, all I can imagine is some dude sitting there with the kilos of you know cheese. How do we wrap this one up? You know, you know, what do we do here? <laughs> 
All right. Well, but now to the serious part. So, so tell how long have you been in homicide? So I've been in homicide since about uh, 2017. So about uh, almost five years now. And before that, what was the majority of your time? What were you doing up until you got into homicide? And then why did you get into homicide? So I'd been promoted out of the uh, rope squad. I went back to 51 division as a sergeant there. I worked uh, the road again for about 10 months. And then I went to the detective office and I went to the major crime unit within 51. And then I went to the uh, the holdup squad for uh, four and a half years where I investigated bank robberies. Um, from there, I came to uh, homicide. Wow, you've got some extensive experience in some major uh, categories there within the Toronto police. Yeah, I've, I've been pretty lucky to uh, to been in some pretty good uh, spots. I mean, the work's been phenomenal in every place I've been. It's uh, it's really enjoyable and it's uh, really fulfilling. Nice. So um, did the uh, RCMP, so so in the United States, the, uh, you know, bank robbery is a federal offense. And if the FBI wants to, they, they get involved and they work bank robberies. But uh, otherwise, you know, little local ones will work it. Was there a federal statute like that in Canada where the RCMP had jurisdiction over bank robberies? No, bank robberies here are basically investigated by the jurisdiction they're in. So uh, every city and then obviously the uh, Ontario Provincial Police, if it's outside a major jurisdiction, um, would involve and we'd all work together. I mean, most of our robberies crossed uh, into a few different districts. So we'd all work together to uh, come up with a solution. Yeah. Cooperation. Who knew that? (laughs) Where everybody's so freaking nice up there. Everybody's nice. I, hey, Ben, you want to join my case? Sure. What do you got? I don't, hey, I'll share I my cheese with you. I about moving to Canada until I had to come up for a, I was up there in a conference actually in Toronto back in November and stayed at the Westin down by the water there. Oh, beautiful. I mean, just beautiful area. But coming in, I'd had my shots, my vaccinate, all that good stuff. And they come in, they say, well, we're doing random testing, you know, for COVID. So I get one of those things way up my nose. I've had COVID testing before. I get one of those things way up my nose. It wasn't random. They took every American coming <laughs> off flights and ran us through this thing. And look, it was brutal. But anyway, I suffered because, no, but it was a fun time. I walked a lot of places because it was, it was November. It was kind of chilly, but it was still nice. But the one thing I was surprised about, uh, you know, we watch uh, down here, there was a series called Turn that was on AMC about the Revolutionary War. And one of the captains uh, that was with the uh, British Army ended up becoming a very famous governor in Canada. Oh, really? And a lot of streets are named after him. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. I just spaced out his name, so I'll have to look it up while we're talking here. Oh, my gosh. To our, all our listeners, we apologize for that. <laughs> Hold on. Let's let's do the magic of uh, Simcoe. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, Governor Captain Simcoe. Simcoe. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a real jackass in that <laughs> But he moved to Canada and became nice. So, uh, well, see, that's what Canada go. does to you. Yeah, that's you what know. happens. You move up here, you just become nice. Everybody's nice. There you go. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> so let's talk about Let's start getting into this case that we're about to talk about. So when you took over homicide um, or when you came to homicide, were you uh, you're an acting sergeant now? But did you come in as a sergeant because you were sergeant somewhere else? How does that work? That's right. So I came in as a detective um, and I was involved in the cold case unit. How come you came in as a detective if you were promoted and a sergeant in another unit? So sergeant and detective up here, are basically the same rank. So sergeant is basically working in unit. Form okay. and detective is basically working in one of the uh, specialty squads, so it's same rank, just 
opposite ends of the uh, the coin. So let's talk about. So you get in there. Um, what what made you? Was this just an act? Did you want to just progress your your knowledge base, your skills? Was homicide the next logical thing for you? Or did something come up where you said, "I want to get into homicide"? Yeah, I mean, I was given the opportunity, so I took it, and um, and then I just started to run with it. Uh, I learned there was a number of. Uh, detectives that have been in the office for a number of years so they kind of showed me the ropes in regards to the uh to the cold cases because it's a whole different uh it's a diff whole different world than getting a fresh case right like restarting something that other people have already investigated and for the most part have in investigated very well um but putting a 2017 2019 2021 lens on it is uh is completely different so uh i mean it's uh there's a lot of there's a lot of ability there to create and solve cases that were previously unsolvable in the past. So here I'm showing you something. You'll get this. I'm actually helping an agency with the cold case. This is my work on the cold case right now. Picture of the victim on the back. You know, and I kind of adopted the LAPD uh, cold case uh, approach that they have. They have you know the table of contents, so they get the chronological record and everything. And I'll tell you, but you're right. Working. You know, because through this, there's so many things you go after. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, the difference between catching, you know, a, a, a case that just happens. You know, you've got a fresh homicide versus a cold case. What's the what's the big difference? And when I look at this, too, I just think about, man, you think you kill a lot of trees. But the, the, in a lot of these cases, the one thing you need, that dot you need to connect is somewhere in this paperwork. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the hardest part. I, I mean, now, if if you catch a a fresh homicide everything's digital right so everything's on everything's computerized so everything's on your computer so people anywhere that are working with you just it's one click of the computer and they're up and they have all the information they can go through it um you have your video you have your cell phones you have uh um Credit you know, cards. every yeah, credit cards, any all the digital tracking now that you didn't have back in the day, um, people were just weren't able to be tracked that way. So you go back, and then I mean, you've got your advances in science, um, how far we've come with DNA. The, there's all those things that are available to you in fresh cases that weren't available in in cases previous. And even the computer capability to be able to do link analysis to ingest a lot of amount of data and start looking for relationships between the data that it would take a human, you know, months to look at a computer can spit out in seconds. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes we've we've got cases with 17, 18 boxes full of papers and your connection could be in there in box one and box 17. So you have to bring it up to 2021, 2022 standards and digitize the entire case, which is a hugely labor uh, intensive process to get that done up to where you can actually investigate it through uh, today's means. Now, when you guys open up, uh, go back and work on a cold case, um, are all the cold cases already being digitized or do you only digitize them once you decide to open up that case? And then what's your criteria for determining which cases you're going to work on? So we've we've actually created a cold case tracker. So we have all our cases tracked um, and it provides all the information of everything that's in that case, DNA evidence, what type of case it was, who the victim was. 
um, as much information as we possibly can. We've been doing our best to digitize all the cases that we possibly can. Um, but I mean, with 700, it's just, it's a huge, huge process. Um, but we're working through it to get them all up to today's standards. And basically what we've started with, and this was before my time, it was started before my time, is um, we started with vulnerable victims and close contact murders. Um, hoping that in a lot of them, there's there could be DNA evidence available that just A, wasn't available at the time or wasn't tested because at, at certain points in the past, you needed puddles of DNA, whereas now you need a pinhead. Um, so those are all things that we we take a look at and, and go through. And that's that's one of the other challenges, though, too. People think DNA, it's a, oh, man, we got DNA, case is over. It's like, no, especially when you start talking about things like touch DNA, because I could touch something, hand it to Murph, he could touch it and hand it to you. I have absolutely no connection to that case, but yet my touch DNA mm-hmm. is on that. So a lot of people think the DNA is the silver bullet, and, it's, and quite frankly, it's not anymore. Um, it's like it's another tool that you have to use to investigate, right? So that, that's been one of the challenges as we've gotten more advanced and we can detect even more minute things. If I left a puddle of DNA at a scene, it's like it's pretty easy to say you were there. You know, there's no doubt. But now with things like touch DNA and mitochondrial DNA, I mean, we start getting smaller and smaller samples. Are you challenged by that too, trying to say now that we've got this, I mean, how do we link this person now to the crime? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we assess all of our DNA results through that lens. It's what's the DNA, where was it left, and do we believe that this is the offender's DNA because of the scene? I mean, there's certain aspects where you can look and go, absolutely, that's going to be the offender's DNA. But there's other ones where you look at and you may have three, four different DNA profiles or the DNA may not be sufficient enough, maybe on a beer bottle in a in a residence. Um, you can't say that that is your offender, but it does give you something to work with, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like if you get semen out of a victim's vagina, you know, we're, we're talking clinically here, right? That's kind of a, that's a no-brainer there. That's like, there's only a few ways that gets there, right? But but having some other type, like you say, DNA on a, on a beer bottle, well, how do I know somebody doesn't, isn't, you know, how do I know that beer bottle was brought there? Was it, you know, was it drank somewhere else and brought here? So I, I like the way that you're approaching this, but what's your criteria for opening up a case? I mean, do you look at, obviously solvability is one of those things, how much stuff... What does it look like before you open up a case? What's the process you go through? So every case that we open, we don't go um, fully from top to bottom. So we'll open the case. We'll A, have the exhibits uh, um, assessed. And if there is any hope of either creating a DNA sample or sending things back to be retested, then we'll do that right off the bat. Um, in the meantime, if, if we aren't able to create an offender profile, we won't bother uh, reinvestigating that case unless that we believe that there's changes in, um, in relationships that happened within that case and we're able to go back and re-interview people. Um, people's lives may have changed. So uh, really the two things that we're using are advances in science and changes in relationships within, within these cases. So like changes in relationships, like somebody 10 years later, 12 years later, 15 years later decides, I, I can't have this on my conscience anymore. I've got to give a tip. Somebody told me something. So you get a good tip. You might open up the case. But it's like, but if it's just sitting there with no change in anything, if there's no forensic, uh, there's nothing forensically you can test, no DNA, and there's no tips coming in, it's kind of like it's hard to open those things up and work those 
totally cold. That's correct. It's like the shootings as well. I mean, because you, you don't have, if you don't recover the firearm, um, you've got some ballistics, but you don't have the firearm. You don't really have any DNA because it's not close contact. Those ones are tough to uh, reopen or rework unless you have um, people that you can go back and re-interview and maybe get some further information out of that. Um, but like we said, the, the vulnerable victims and the close contact murders, anything with a sexual assault element, uh, those are ones that we really uh, focus in on to, to, uh, to reinvestigate. So in a typical year, how many open case, how many cold cases are you working on? Oh, we probably have 50 to 60 open at any one time. I mean, um, right now we have, there's three of us in the unit, um, in our cold case unit. Um, we're looking to add a couple more people, um, but we're actively investigating around 50 cases over the course of a year. And I mean, with cold case, and you guys know, it's um, we almost sometimes call it the hurry up and wait office because you'll send something in to be retested. Well, that's an eight week wait until the so in between that you're going to fill your time with opening other cases and and getting that process. So it's all spaced out when it as your information comes back to you. That's, when you, you know, that, that's horrible having to wait that. I mean, that's the way process is, and, and you know, hopefully that'll improve in the future. But you lose your momentum. You know, if you're hot on that trail and you need that one piece there from a new test, it just kind of kills your momentum in the investigation. Doesn't it? And then you start working for eight weeks. You're working on multiple other cases. Yeah, it's uh, so we have to keep extensive notes to rem to remind us of exactly what point we're at when we come back to it. Um, and that's part of our tracker is we put that right into our tracker, exactly everything that we've done in each case. So when our information does come back, we go and review exactly what we've done and can pick it up right away. So is that case tracker, is that a homegrown tool you guys created? It is. It was uh, our IT created us this. Uh, we told them what we wanted and they created this for us. Um, and it's, nice. it, it's unbelievable. We can, it helps us because we're able to, um, to sort things by basically anything that anybody could ask. How many DNA samples do we have? Um, last names, females, male victims, um, offenders, stabbings, shootings, you name it, we can cross-reference it. It's, it's a couple clicks that we can provide you with any information that you may be asking for. Except nice. the number of provinces in Very Canada. Nice. I, I counted. I it took me a while. <laughs> I didn't know you this didn't was going to be geography and history. You guys didn't let me know about that part. Uh, I told you we cleared this with the we cleared this at the highest levels with the Toronto Police Service. They said, "Ask him this question." <laughs> so, uh, but in terms of the number of cold cases you have open, what is what is your uh, closing closure rate on those things when you open that up? How many are closed is successfully? I mean, there, and let's talk about too because it's not a case. Can be closed for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's, um, um, you know, the, the offender's already in custody on another charge and they choose not to prosecute. Sometimes uh, you just, there's uh, offenders unidentified. Sometimes it's closed by exception. What are your, what are, what are the types of closures you have for those cases and what's your, what's your percentage of cases that get closed after they're opened? You know, we probably close four to five a, a year. Um, and as you stated, a lot of those are resolves, which uh, the offender's deceased or the offender's not prosecutable or, um, I mean, there's a myriad of reasons or um, there's just not enough. We know who did it. There's just not enough evidence to take them to court or the prosecutors don't want to take them to court or, um, I mean, ones from the 70s and such, all the witnesses are deceased. Uh, there's just no chance of prosecution. So we resolve those cases. Um, we hope to arrest one or two people a year on our cases. Uh, obviously with 
genetic genealogy coming on board we're hoping to uh to really up that so we're hoping to close a number of not only homicide cold cases but also sexual assault cold cases so some people listening in and if you're a taxpayer you're going man that's a lot of people just to do a few cases like that what what is the what is the importance of working on cold cases well, I mean, especially with uh, both homicides and sexual assaults, you have offenders running around in your community that were able to commit these heinous offenses uh, who knows how many years ago. Um, what have they been doing since then? Or what were they doing previous to that? Or what are they doing in the community? Um, you could be working alongside or your kids could be going to uh, to to another person's house and that person could be a, a murderer, right? We We need to, for the safety of the community, we need to address these for the victims. I mean, the victims' families, uh, no matter how many years it goes, they still want closure. They want to know what happened to their their loved ones and who was able to to actually take their life from them. You know, and, and, and I, I think you would probably agree with this. Of all the crimes that people commit, murder is the most egregious, in my opinion, because you've taken someone's life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... Uh... I can't even imagine what it takes to be able to commit a murder, like a cold-blooded murder. Um, it's it's uh, such a small percentage of the population that I think could ever actually do that and live with it. Um, it I just I don't understand what goes through these people's minds, um, but they're just I guess they're just wired differently than we are because it's uh, I couldn't imagine living with knowing that I had taken somebody else's life. And the other part is is being the surviving members of that family of someone who's been murdered and not knowing what happened. That's just it's got to be that's I, I would just think that's something that you'd never get over. Yeah. And that's why I've always said, I mean, we use a lot of words. I, I look at it differently. People say, well, let's we get them closure. I think closure is a victim of, of fiction. I don't think families ever truly get closure. They never get over the death of a loved one or the serious sexual assault. I think what we're in the business of, or like you're in the business of, at least is resolution or justice. We, we can't, we can't make it the way it was the day before. There's no way we can go back and make it the way it was the day before. But what we can do is resolve this and get justice, you know, for the family. Cause I think that's the, mm -hmm. to your point, I think that's, I always wanted to explore this with people who work cold cases. Cause people say, well, there's not that many cases. You look at LAPD. I think one time they had 7,000 unsolved homicides just in LA alone. Yeah, you know? that's that's an incredible amount, and and you're right. I mean, it, it's, I guess it's a sense of relief for the families, um, if they find out who it was and if they knew that person. Um, and one of the conversations that we always have with the families is, we can't always tell you why why this happened. I mean, unless the offender is willing to talk and tell us, um, we we aren't going to know why they did that to the to these people. It, it, we may never, yeah, may why never did get that you answer. Pick this person, why did you do that? Why did you go here? You know, and, and if they don't want to talk or they're dead, there's just no way to get that, you know, anyway. Hey, let me ask you one more question before we get into the case that we're going to talk about here too. Um, let's talk to about statute of limitations on certain crimes. Because I know, tell us about uh, homicide and tell us about sexual assaults. What are the statutes like inside of, uh, are they controlled by Toronto or are they controlled by the province Ontario in terms of your laws? There are no statutes in Canada. So you can be prosecuted for any offense at any time. So it doesn't matter how far back it goes. We can you lay the charges. Shit, that parking ticket I got four years ago, I'm still on the hook for? That's right. And you add in the cheese and you're in big trouble when you come oh back up God. here. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> 
see, that is interesting. No statute of limitations. Um, let's talk about another thing, too, I think that will will factor into some things. So in the United States, too, we have a, a, a concept of law or, you know, a, a, an element of law called double jeopardy. In other words, you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. If jeopardy attaches, even if you're not, it doesn't go to a jury, but if jeopardy attaches, you cannot be tried twice. Even if you come, even if it comes out later and find out you're guilty of it, once you're found uh, not guilty or jeopardy attaches and it's dismissed with prejudice, which means it can never be refiled again, what's it like in Canada in terms of jeopardy? It, it's it's similar. Um, we we are able to um, stay the charges sometimes. So if the crown actually stays the charges, um, in, then we can reinitiate the charges. Or if we appeal. Um, we, we appeal them being uh, found not guilty. We can appeal and then try to retry them that way. But basically, if they're found not guilty, the Crown doesn't appeal the um, non-conviction. Um, we can't try them again for the same case unless there's new evidence that comes up. If there's new evidence that comes up, then we can apply to to retry them. But it's a rare, rare occurrence. So if Murph was charged with illegally transporting 47 kilos of Roquefort cheese and he was found not guilty and you come back later and you have somebody that provides physical evidence or something, you could go back, appeal that, and he could actually be charged with that and convicted even though he was found not guilty in an earlier trial. Yeah, and I mean, it would be a long process and it's a very rare occurrence, but we could actually reinitiate that if there was new evidence that came forward. See, Murph, I told, uh, just don't, whatever you do, don't screw up in Canada. They never forget. They never that, forget. Yeah, but then again, in that case, that evidence would, uh, it's, you talk about a smelly case. <laughs> I don't want to put that in my evidence locker, yeah. Listen, <laughs> if, if you've got a uh, car full of cheese, you just run. If you get pulled over, you just run. Because, uh, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> uh, cocaine, just show them where the dumpster is. That's you're right. Okay, yeah, you're good. Cheese, you're going down. <laughs> you're good. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, and folks, too, you know, the folks know our, our standard thing. We take the cases seriously, but not ourselves. So we're, we're you know, we're, right. but, you know, we joke around, but we're very serious about the homicide stuff. And so let's start laying the groundwork for this, too, because we're going to talk about a, a cold case of yours. But to get to this cold case, we have to understand how you got about working on this case. So... You had the chance to attend some training that the RCMP put on with the people who actually investigated the Golden State Killer case, Joseph D'Angelo. Um, so let, let's talk about that. How did that come about? Uh, you know, how, how did you get to that? You know, how did you put in for that training? Let's talk about getting into that course. That's correct. So um, it was actually our police college notified us that the Canadian Police College was putting on the first ever historical homicide and unidentified human remains course uh, in Ottawa. So they made us aware in case we wanted to send some people. So we decided to send two of us up to the uh, the course. We, we really didn't know exactly what it was going to entail when we went up. Um, I think even the uh, facilitator was just kind of putting it together because, as I said, it was the first one in Canada. Um, but they were able to get a lot of great um, presentations and one was actually the the Golden State Killer presentation and on genetic genealogy. How many people were in this course? I think that there was uh, about 35, maybe a couple more, but it was pretty close to around 35 people from all across Canada, um, northern Canada, western Canada, uh, it, eastern Canada. There were people from all over 
um, right across Canada. So it was, uh, it was a great course. We met a lot of good people, made a lot of connections and, uh, and definitely learned a lot. I mean, the genetic genealogy, when I listened to that, uh, the first presentation on the golden state killer, I had no idea what they had done. I was so confused, um, because they had been immersed in it for so long. They were talking at such a high level. Hey, did you ever deal with geographic profiling or anybody named Kim Rosmo uh, out of uh, British Columbia? No, I don't think so. We usually use uh, our OPP uh, profilers when we when we utilize a criminal profile. Have you ever done any geographic profiling where you look at where the crimes are committed, like the the Green River Killer, you know, and the uh, Golden State Killer, where they geographically look at where they are and draw relationships between them? No, I haven't. I mean, we we don't have a whole lot that are connected through DNA, um, and we definitely don't have any that are are really connected across Canada as of yet. I mean, hopefully in the future. If there are those people out there that had been going across Canada, I mean, I know in the U.S. you guys have people that travel all over the place and and leave bodies throughout all your states. Hey, players, that's the end of part one. Detective Stephen Smith cracks a 36-year-old cold case. Stay tuned for part two. We've got the solution to the case. There's a real twist in this case you're going to want to hear. In the meantime, go check us out at GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Our website, it's got everything you need on there, including our book list, merch list, pictures from episodes, all the great stuff. Visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But you got to go check us out, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just released our March 2022 random surprised episode. In other words, we called it, you can't make this shit up. And believe me, you can't wait till you hear some of the stories on that. So go check us out. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We'll see you for part two. Detective Stephen Smith cracks a 36-year-old cold case. (laughs) 